Heritage Media. We've spoken to buyers agents, sales agents, conveyances and property managers, but we've never spoken to a landlord and we wanted to know what it was like owning multiple investment properties and how do you organise yourself? What are the tips and tricks? What are the pitfalls and the rewards? Today we're speaking to Michelle and Ralph on the highs and lows and hopefully you'll get some great advice on how to build and manage your own investment portfolio. Here they are. Good morning. Oh, hi. Is that Michelle? It is. Oh, hi, Michelle. It's Carly calling from Wisebury. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. Ralph oh. just joined the, joined the group. Hi, Ralph. I'm Carly. Nice good to morning. meet you. Hi, Carly. How are you? Yeah, really well. Tell, tell me a little bit about yourselves and, and where you grew up. Okay. Well, um, I've been on the Central Coast all my life. I actually grew up at Avoca Beach and I had the most wonderful childhood. Um, we virtually lived right on the beach and uh, I've got many, many good memories of my growing up there. And then when um, when Ralph and I got married, we moved to Gorakin and now we've ended up at Nora Head. So uh, that's, uh, that's sort of a little <laughs> background, I suppose, to the a fact little, that I've yeah. always... Yeah, <laughs> and you obviously would have seen so much change in, in all those years. I, I mean, I've grown up on the Central Coast and there's suburbs now that weren't here 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, enormous change and I can probably even uh, pinpoint in my life that I reckon that um, one of the things that really led to a huge influx of people, especially coming up from Sydney, to live here was in the 1980s when the freeway was actually completed and instead of having to come up what was a really windy road um, to get to the central coast, you, you were able to just, you know, have freeway conditions. And I think that made people come up here because land was cheaper. Um, it was such a um, easy lifestyle that it was such a sought after place to live. Um, in fact, I remember, because I've been in education my whole career, that uh, to get a teaching job on the Central Coast or Newcastle was considered almost impossible. It was so sought after. Um, for those reasons, you know, relaxed lifestyle, close to the beaches, um, just, you know, away from the, the sort of the frenetic hustle and bustle of Sydney. I think a lot of people moved up here um, to start, you know, start their families and what, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so how many years ago did you buy your very first investment property? I'll let Ralph answer that. Yeah. Um, I'm actually from... Uh, Sydney, and my mum and dad um, bought a cabin on the Central Coast in Gorakin, actually. And the cabin was a self-contained cabin, and this was when there was only dirt roads and no electricity. And um, mum, dad ended up building a cottage on the on the land. And as a young fellow, I helped him, and eventually that became our first house because I bought that house off um, Michelle and I bought that house off my mum and dad. And uh, so we've seen a lot of changes and we stayed in Gorakin when we were first married as our first home. And then uh, after that, we, we moved from there. So, yeah. And an interesting aside to that, because I've always uh, taken interest in the financial side of things, is we borrowed $30,000 to buy that house. And when we were trying to get money from the bank, 
I remember one of the big four banks told us um, that when we'd save $10,000 to come back uh, and ask again to see if we could get $30,000, and Ralph said, if we had, if we could save 10000 we wouldn't be asking you for a loan. <laughs> Imagine now and needing a quarter of your mortgage to get a home. Yeah. Well, the funny thing was, too, that was in the early 1980s, and it was just, just at the time where um, the bank deregulated. Uh, you had uh, Paul Keating as your um, treasurer with Bob Hawke as the Prime Minister and massive changes to banking deregulation and all of a sudden um, you could uh, you could borrow money much, much more easily and there was lots of building societies popping up all over the place. So it, looking back, it was quite an exciting time, I suppose, for people that um, wanted to borrow money and had been told previously, no, sorry, come back when you've, you know, got a much more significant contribution to make, yeah. One, one bank car we offered us two bank cards to buy a house. <laughs> Can you imagine the interest rates on, on, on bank cards to get your first home loan? Oh, like it, was, it was a real learning curve. Like we walked out shaking our heads thinking, oh my goodness, is it going to be this hard? Because they actually wanted us to have a third deposit, $10,000 deposit to borrow 30000 so it was thirty percent or thirty three percent. So, oh my yeah, god, that's insane! Jobs. Yeah. So, mm. and and tell me, with your with your both your backgrounds, did you come from families that were you know a little risk taking and and sort of you know teaching you how to invest, or was this just something you both forged on your own? Um. Well, my family certainly. I wouldn't say that they were risk takers. My dad was a, um, a school teacher and my mum was a stay-at-home mum. Um, but from an early stage, I have a very strong recollection of my mum sitting down budgeting the, fam- you know, the family money, I suppose. And we never wanted for anything when I think, when I think about it. Um, but I'd say that my parents were very careful with their money and eventually my dad um, became, and this is another thing, a lot happened in the 1980s, um, with the whole introduction of uh, sort of superannuation started to be more and more on the horizon and my dad left teaching to become a financial advisor and that was sort of right at the beginning when financial advisors became much more... um, independent, I suppose, and not just necessarily attached to a bank. And uh, and he always had an interest in, um, I suppose, investing. That's probably, and I think the conversations I used to have with him, he was the first person that um, mentioned to me, why don't I get a bank card, as it was called back in those days, and explained how a credit card worked and all that sort of thing when they sort of came into me. Um, so, no, my family certainly wasn't a family of risk takers, but they were a, a family that sort of were good budgeters and, you know, the old concept of uh, make sure you always put something away for a rainy day. They were certainly good at investment, I think, yeah. And did you get the advice to, to pay off your own home before you begin investing or were you investing while you're still paying off a mortgage in the early days? Uh, we actually bought our first investment property um, while we still had still had quite a significant mortgage. Um, so what basically prompted us, I suppose, um, was that 
I started to think, because Ralph was self-employed all the time, and when you're self-employed, you have no financial security. You have no surety of income from one week to the next. Um, my income was always secure. So I remember starting to think at an early time how we could sort of make ourselves, sort of set ourselves up to be, I suppose, secure further down the track. The, I didn't start paying superannuation until I was in my early 30s, um, even though I'd had a part-time job since I was 15. So someone today would have started having little drip feeding of superannuation from that first job. Uh, with Ralph, um, starting out his own business and everything, it was sort of like, well, how do we provide for him for superannuation? I could get it through my work when it, I, it first started, but uh, Ralph was totally self-reliant. So I started reading about um, ways that, um, you know, we might be able to invest and, uh, and also talking a lot to my dad. But I think Ralph was also going to say something about his mum and dad because they've got an interesting story too about their attitude to saving and investment. Well, my, my dad was Scottish, my mother was Irish, and uh, dad was a prisoner of war, Second World War and so forth. So uh, I would say when they came to Australia, we used to listen to the stories that they lived on potatoes for eight weeks and nothing <laughs> else. And if we ever offered it a tin can, they thought it was um, scandalous. That it was just, you know, how could you possibly afford tin cans when you don't own your home? So I guess I guess they did teach us some things, but my mum, I suppose, taught taught us and had the philosophy that you can't get into trouble if you go to work every day, and uh, and I guess that's been all our philosophy that work is such a wonderful thing, and if you like your job, um, you, you're more than halfway there because uh, you don't mind going there. So I guess that's my history with my mum and dad about being careful, but if it when it comes to the investment side of it and take the chance or the risk, um, Michelle was the driver because being self-employed in that, if it wasn't for Michelle and her interest and wisdom into um, investment, I'd have three motorbikes, four boats and, and five cars. <laughs> <laughs> the house is probably a good investment. Otherwise, the, you know, easy come, easy go attitude would be... Uh, wouldn't be right. So, yeah. and, and I suppose what really started us off was a book. Um, and I don't know how I, I might have read about it in the paper or something, but I've still got it. It's actually sitting here on the table next to me. It's gone a bit yellow now. It was published in 1992, but it's by a, um, a woman called Jan Summers called Building Wealth Through Investment Property. Now, Jan Summers was a high school math teacher that when she went on maternity leave, when she had her children, started to um, do a bit of maths around, I suppose, trying to make their financial future a bit more secure. Anyway, she ended up being uh, a very successful property investor. Her husband was a computer programmer. I think he was in IT in the early days. And... Uh, I mean, she comes from Cleveland, which is sort of just a uh, eastern suburb out of Brisbane. And uh, her book is written in such a simple, easy-to-read way, but she's also done done the math sort of thing. Um, she ended up writing about three or four books, I think. And uh, I always remember there was one particular line. There were two things that stuck in my mind. One was when you're too tired after work to cook dinner, so you go and pay, you know, 
$50 for takeaway and it's awful. And then you think, what a waste that $50 was. I'm sure I could have, you know, mm. spent it in a better way. And the other one was she said, from her map at that time, if you could spare $100 a week, you can buy an investment property. And her philosophy was always for the long term and it was always that your investment properties would have appeal to a broad sector of the market. So instead of going buying some fancy house um, where your return is quite limited, that there'll always be a rental market. Nearly everyone that I know um, rents at some stage in their life and for a variety of reasons. Um, so if you can have an investment property that appeals to a broad sector and is accessible financially by a lot of people, then it, you'll probably have very little um, problem in making sure you have a tenant for the long term. So um, that the wisdom from that book uh, led me on to other other books which I read. I mean, if we're into recommendations, I'd, re- I'd recommend Noel Whitaker's books about, um, uh, he's an Australian as well, um, Making Money Made Simple, I think, was the first one he wrote. And these are all things that you don't have to be an economics graduate to read. You just have to be able to be literate um, because the principles in them about investment are really, really good. And with Jan Summers in particular, hers was skewed very much towards um, property investment, which not everyone agrees with, but for us it's, it's, um, it's been a good thing. And do you think it's still relevant today, the advice that is given in those books it's always um, relative, you know, obviously wages have gone up and so, you know, in, well, not really interest rates at the moment, but it's it's all relative for the time. I mean, back then $30,000 was a hell of a lot of money. Like right now, $700,000 is a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, um, but do you think that advice and those key principles are still the same? I think there's, I think from, from experience and history's point of view, there, there appears to be, so much doom and gloom where everyone's told, oh, you know, my children can't afford a home, my children can't, they can't live here, they can't do this, they can't do that. And and I guess if you say to the generation, they're sick of hearing about the smashed avocado that every Saturday morning they're sitting there having smashed avocado instead of saving their money, you know. But I, I'm involved in a football thing or a sporting thing and, and I quite often hear the, the, the people talking that they spend $200 on a Saturday night. Now, we all like to have a bit of fun, but to me, sitting back and hearing that they're spending $200 on a night and at the same time saying, i just never going to own my own home, I'm thinking, you know what, even if you only spend 100 on Saturday night, you could invest the other 100 yeah. But the goal, as you said then, a 700,000 seems to be so far out of everyone's reach. Well, well, well so was 30,000 when we were doing it. To go back to your question, yes, I think the principles are the same. In fact, I don't think the principles have ever changed since money was first invented as a way of transactional barter. You know mm. what I mean? I think if you... Um, Obviously, the, the most important thing is that you have a job. Mm. Um, if you don't have secure income, I think it's a whole different story. But if you're able to plan, um, and the other thing I think that puts a lot of people off, I think I always wonder whether they don't ask the right questions. So instead of accepting what they hear, 
um, through the media or whatever about, you know, housing affordability, I'd be asking the question, what do I have to do to in, to afford a house? Or what do I have to do to afford an investment property? And what it'll probably come back to is you have to educate yourself. You actually have to become a bit more independent of thought and do a bit of reading, ask questions, you know, be curious about about the whole industry. Mm. Take note of what's happening around you and also start to be a bit more um, aware of what you actually spend your money on. Now, no one wants someone to live, you know, on a life of potatoes and no tin can for <laughs> the rest of their life. But I think you're often surprised um, by how much money you can actually save if you do little things and you do them habitually and you do them well. Um, I, I just always remember in my um, work once, I had the opportunity to go to a, uh, a two-day course about financial well-being that was run by the Benevolent Society. And it was such an interesting mix of people that were there. Like there was a lady that um, was in charge of homeless men out somewhere in Parramatta, you know, there was people from a lot of different agencies like to do with uh, women who were in financial strife because of domestic violence situations. There was a whole scope of it, you know, from all different backgrounds. And one of the things I came away from there, or a couple of things, I suppose, one was that your parents have such a bearing on your attitudes to money. Mm. And uh, so if you've got parents who are fairly thrifty and give you good advice, then, then that, that's a good thing. But also the idea of um, what came out as um, a sort of you know, how easily you fritter away money on things. And we all had to choose one thing in our life that we felt that we could probably um, do less of or do away with and work out how much we could save. Well, every night no- I used to be travelling to Sydney at this time and every afternoon I used to stop at the Pennant Hills McDonald's and have a standard hazelnut latte. And I worked out that that was probably costing me about $1,800 a year. Mm. Um, and when you do the maths and you think, well, maybe instead of a stand- standard size, if I had a small one, I might be able to save a bit. There was another lady that said, I'm addicted to buying magazines. You know, she said, if I didn't buy as many magazines. And I, I'm sort of in danger. I'm even listening to my own voice. And I feel that I'm in danger as though I'm this sort of person that I don't want to feel like I'm lecturing anyone. I think it's more sort of like passing on information that if people are really curious and they're interested and they're thinking, how can I perhaps afford a mortgage or how can I afford an investment property? Then the more information you get from people that have might have trodden the path before you, maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. Look, yeah. I, I've I've done it in the past where you, you keep a, you know, like a money diary for two weeks. Every single cent you spend, and you you see where it goes, and it's um, it can be a little bit frightening to, to see to see whether <laughs> well, it's it takeaway or you know clothing or I don't know coloring your yeah. hair, whatever it is. You know, there's a there there definitely is is money to be saved. But um, this chat was really informative, and we enjoyed talking with Michelle and Ralph so much that we've actually ran out of time for this episode. 
because not only did we speak about being an investor, we also chatted about being a landlord and we think you need to hear what they've got to say. So next week, we're going to continue with part two of this pod. This episode of Our Heritage drops every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. All the links are in the show notes. And if you like what we're doing, can you please rate and review us? It would help us a lot. It was produced by Kieran Christie, hosted by me, Carly Eldridge, and brought to you by Heritage Media. Bye for now.